0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Good morning and welcome. My name is Joe Hewitt. I'm the Vice President for Policy Learning and Strategy here at USIP. Uh, Thank you for joining us this morning for a conversation with Chris Blatman, the author of the recent book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. As you'll hear in just a few minutes, the book draws from decades of research in economics, political science and psychology to better understand the root causes for violent conflict as well as the pathways to peace. And here's one of the big things that the book imparts to the reader about violent conflict. It's not the norm it's not the norm. Hostile rivals far more often figure out ways to compromise. In the exceptional cases when rivalries turn violent, the cause can be traced to five factors that undermine the potential for rivals to deescalate and compromise. It's through the logic of those five destabilizing factors that we learn a lot about how to steer potentially violent conflicts toward peace. You're about to hear a lot more about this, and I'm betting you'll find the next hour to be really engaging. Chris Blattman is the Romilly E. Pearson Professor of Global Conflict Studies at the University of Chicago in the Harris School of Public Policy and the Pearson Institute. He also co-leads the university's Development Economic Center, as well as the Obama Foundation Scholars Program. He's an economist and a political scientist, and his global work on violence, crime, and poverty has been widely covered by several major media outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and many more. Why We Fight has already been recommended as a best book by the Financial Times, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Amazon. And I might add, USIP had the privilege of providing support to his dissertation research as a USIP Peace Scholar, not too many years ago. To lead the conversation with Chris, I'm really delighted to introduce Raj Kumar. Raj is the founding president and editor-in-chief of DevEx, the media platform for the development community. DevEx was created in 2000 by Raj and his collaborators to connect and inform development professionals all over the world. Today, DevEx serves a global audience of more than a million workers and development professionals. He is also, if I might add, a truly gifted moderator with a knack for drawing out key insights, whether he's speaking with senior government officials, acclaimed thought leaders, or any other global leader. Raj, thanks so much for taking time from your busy schedule to join us today. I'm gonna hand things over to you now, thank you.
0: Thank you, Joe, and thanks to all of you who are joining us virtually from all over the world for what I'm sure is going to be a really interesting conversation. I'm here with Chris Blattman, who, if you're like me, uh, you may know him from Twitter, you may know him from his podcasts and from his media appearances, uh, but it's our first time meeting in person, Mm -hmm. and I'm so excited to get a chance to have this discussion with you, Chris. Me too. Great to be with you. Congrats on this book, uh, "Why We Fight." It's a it's a pretty bold and provocative title. And it's it's ambitious. I mean, you're setting out to essentially describe why in the full history of human civilization, groups of people, gangs or countries, societies of different forms engage in prolonged violent struggle. And that is an ambitious goal. What made you want to set out to try to build an algorithm or a framework for understanding that question?
2: Right. Well, thanks for being here. Um... It, it was born of frustration that nobody else was writing this book. This is a book that, I mean, a little bit it's my own ideas and my own research and a lot of my own stories. Uh, but it's, I mean, this is, there's 50, 100 more years of, like, brilliant scholars, all these disciplines, all the lessons of practical peace builders. And I, I couldn't believe how many of these insights that I'd learned and acquired and all the great thinkers that I'd encountered and the big ideas that rotated my brain 90 degrees every time I read about them, that hadn't gotten out there, that the village leaders or gang leaders or world leaders, all these people I met, don't know. And so that seemed kind of a problem. And, and year after year, nobody else wrote this book. And so finally I said, I'm going to write this book because it's too important.
0: I mean, it's ambitious because you are boiling down a lot of thought, and the book is filled with interesting stories and insights, but that you boil down to these logics as kind of a framework for understanding why people fight. Um, and not just, you know, any conflict, but specifically these prolonged violent struggles between groups, right. what are the implications for understanding that? I mean, why does this matter to be able to have a framework versus to, I guess, the, the thinking that existed before this book came out and people had their own ideas for, yeah. for why violence like this exists? So,
2: I mean, it feels like there's a war for every reason, a reason for every war. And this is true, but it's kind of overwhelming and it almost seems you kind of make it feel hopeless. And then all these people argue and it seems like everyone's across purposes and how do we solve that problem. And I think what these social sciences have like given us is actually a framework for actually under just actually simplifying this and recognizing that there's only so many reasons. And so a lot of these millions and millions of reasons that are all valid are sort of a few logics in disguise. And so I'm not trying to say my book is wrong. All the other books are right. My book is right. All the other books are wrong. I'm trying to say, here's a lens through which you could just sort of make order of the chaos and make a lot more sense. And therefore, sort of like a a tool that a doctor gets for diagnosing and understanding disease better uh, makes us then maybe better at designing and testing treatments. And that's sort of the hope and the
0: goal. I mean, you may not be saying all the other books are wrong, but in a sense, you're critiquing the way... Peace building conflict resolution is thought of and approached today. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I mean, we're here at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Yeah. There's a huge global infrastructure of governments and agencies and NGOs and others that are working on peacebuilding. And it seems like your logic, your framework suggests some people are getting this wrong. Yeah. What do you think people are getting
2: wrong today? I think uh, there's a couple of things. You, know, We'll get into, I think, like the five logics that come from psychology and political science and economics. Um, The one thing that drives all of the five logics, that makes everything worse, that I think we don't focus enough on, is concentrated power. I think that, and and as 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 a country in the United States, as a government, as development agencies, our entire diplomatic system, our entire aid system, I think is designed more often than not to make power more concentrated rather than more checked and balanced. And, and I think that's, that's bad for policy. I think that's bad for development outcomes. I think that's bad for ordinary people. And I think it's really bad for political stability. And so if there's like one meta message that comes out at the end of the book, it's that uh, if we had to focus more on one thing, we be actually be actually trying to check and balance power more in, in the world. Maybe let's try to tease that out
0: using the example of Ukraine, yeah. since it's so much in the news today. Right. You've got this concept of war bias. Yeah. And you talk about how when there is concentrated power, yeah. thinking kind of through game theory, that yeah. leaders of countries might be able to really get away with war with few consequences to themselves. Right. And their people might face most of those negative consequences. And if they win or if the war is beneficial, it might be very beneficial to those yeah. very leaders who, who are concentrated in power. Is that the case here as you assess the situation in Ukraine? Is this kind of Putin's
2: war due to the concentration of power that he has in Russia? Yes, but for, for several reasons, all five of the reasons. So, you know, but let me, like stepping back for a minute, like. Every, if people remembered one thing, like every answer to why we fight is a reason that we as a society or our leaders ignored the costs because war is ruinous. We can see that. And, and it's that ruinousness of war that, that leads most societies to actually just find some other bitter but peaceful way to sort of find a deal or a settlement or a stalemate. But those costs are not equally shared, right? And that's kind of your point right. about concentration of power. Exactly. And so, so, so one of the ways that we find ourselves fighting is when the people who decide whether or not we fight don't bear a lot of those costs or might even have some private interest that they can pursue that benefits them but not their group. And the ultimate example of that is a personalized dictator. right? That's, and, and Putin is, to a large extent, a personalized dictator. And, and I'm, I don't know. We don't know the counterfactual of history. But I think if, if Russia was run by a Politburo instead of a personalized dictator, or if it was run by a plutocracy rather than a Politburo, something more and more checked. Like, it's not like I love crony capitalism. Right. But chronic capitalism in Russia might have saved us from this invasion because more and more people would have been considering some of the costs of this conflict. And I think the fact that he doesn't, I think was maybe one of the things that really. There, there was even some yeah. hope at the beginning of this that maybe the, the Russian billionaires right.
0: would be able to exert influence. And that was part of the sanctions regime put in place, right? That this idea mm-hmm. that that's a kind of
2: check, as you're saying. Yeah. And it can be. And I think it was, and that might, and that's to some degree true i'm not I don't pretend to be a russia expert, but my understanding is that they weren't that really wasn't really where the power resided and and Putin had co- made himself such a powerful personalized autocrat by really fragmenting all that opposition and all those billionaires and capitalists and sort of binding them to him and and he was very, very skillful at that and I think that's that in some sense was the one of the most volatile things with this whole situation.
0: Let's think with some of the other logics, because I think you also talk about this idea of injustice. Mm-hmm. And maybe that relates to concentration of power, right. right? That you have these leaders who are so separate from their people, that it's easier for them to inflict indignities on them. Yeah. And then that creates a sense of injustice and populations say, well, it almost doesn't matter the cost of war anymore, I'm going against this sense of injustice. Yeah. Does that play out in some way in the Ukraine conflict? Or explain maybe that and some of the other logics, how they all fit together here.
2: Right, so we might, so the first one was we might ignore some of the costs of war, but the second one, which I think of as sort of ideologies or intangibles, including justice, glory, nationalistic ideals, ethno-nationalism, all these sorts of things, these ethereal things that we or our leaders may value, we were willing to pay the cost of war to get them, to exterminate the heretic, to accomplish our ideological vision of a greater empire, whatever. And every story we hear about Putin's pursuit of personal glory in a place in history, every story we hear about his vision of a greater Russia or, or um, rectifying these humiliations of the last three decades, those are stories of... Russia, or maybe more particularly Putin and his cabal, pursuing an ideological agenda that makes them willing to pay the cost of war. So they're not ignoring them, but they're willing to pay them for this ethereal other thing that they value. Uh, and it helps that they don't bear most of the cost of that war personally, because now they can pursue their ideological ideals. These two things often mm-hmm. interact in this pretty terrible way.
0: What are some of the other things that interact that you think cause these conflicts to go on and be so prolonged?
2: Right. So the other three I call um, misperceptions, uncertainty, and and, and commitment problems. And, and they're really core ideas that I think come from psychology and, and, and strategy, game theory, essentially, but not complicated game theory, game theory that any poker player or person who negotiates for a used car already understands, but just forgets to apply to. And you
0: describe it all with these pie charts in the book that are fairly easy to yeah. understand that show you kind of the, the gap between what you
2: could get or might lose. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a tragedy that there are these sorts of really deep strategic insights that we all kind of understand on some level, and we just need to be shown that we need to kind of learn to recognize it in the wild. So let's take uncertainty, for example, okay. Um, five months ago, before this ignited, we, nobody knew exactly how strong the military in Russia was going to be. Nobody knew exactly how plucky and resourceful the Ukrainians and their military was going to be. And nobody knew how unified the West would be on sanctions and all of the things that came to pass were within the realm of possibility. But I don't think anybody predicted that Russia would get a bad draw on all three of those things, least of all, Vladimir Putin. And that fundamental uncertainty itself can sort of lead war to be a gamble, in many cases, right? And we look back and we say, Oh, that was a mistake, he miscalculated. Well, that's also true. We'll get to those misperceptions in a second. But let's not forget just how fundamentally uncertain these things are. And so that's just a fact that's hard to resolve and can lead to war. But it's worse than that. And this is where the strategy comes in. It's because, and this is where the poker playing comes in. Like, I don't know what cards you hold. And, and now you're saying, oh, I'm really resolved. Don't You don't invade us. Like we're going to be re- with sanctions and, and our military, we will resist. And I'm like, Maybe I believe you or not? Yeah, because I know you have an incentive to fake it as well, and and so just as in poker, your 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 optimal strategy is never to fold all the time, and your optimal strategy is never to call all the time, right? It's a gamble, and so so those invasions, those skirmishes, and all sorts of things that are a product of uncertainty, and we shouldn't ignore that, right? Then there's the misperceptions and all these stories you hear about Putin being insulated, isolated. And uh, overconfident, underestimating the cost. That's another way we ignore the costs of war, right? We just systematically underestimate that cost benefit calculus. That is also true, I think, in this situation, but some of that's just due to the general uncertainty. And what we, the mistake we often make is we like, attribute a lot of the stuff to mistakes and we forget sort of that really basic almost universal problem and conflict at every level of uncertainty. What about misperceptions and the commitment problem? Take
0: us through that quickly, and I want to bring us to some other So,
2: I mean, misperceptions, I think, comes really, I I don't need to dwell on it, because so many people recognize it instantly. It's this idea that, that Putin's insulated, isolated. Either institutionally he's getting bad information, because of this is what dictatorships, and really a lot of intelligence agencies do, is they filter bad information up to the top, unfortunately. But psychologically, the idea that he, like, like many leaders, is overconfident. And we know leaders can be, we wouldn't have a mutual fund industry if we didn't have people overconfident in their ability to beat the market wrongly year after year, right? So we know, we know that, uh, and it's, it works in politics, too. The last, the fifth one, the fifth reason we can overlook the cost is this sort of, it's like one of the more difficult, subtle, but important, I think, understandings in all of politics and all of human development, because it's everywhere, and it's called a commitment problem, one of the worst <laughs> names in political science. And it's, it's really, there's an old Iraqi adage that says, uh, if you think your opponent's going to eat you for dinner, you better eat them for lunch. That captures a really core insight of the commitment problem. That if, if I think that you're going to have an advantage over me in future that you can exploit, and, I'll be at a, and I'm at a temporary advantage now, I would rather not fight. I'd rather you commit not to use your advantage in the future. Right? We write a constitution. We write a treaty. We find an enforcer. We do this all the time. We solve commitment problems all the time. But sometimes, especially with big powers or especially in the international scene where we have a degree of anarchy, they can't commit. And so I better eat you for lunch. And that explains, people use these commitment problem logics to explain many of the greatest wars in history, from the Peloponnesian War in ancient Greece to World War I to the US invasion of Iraq. Really fundamental. It's not, I'd say, the most important thing to understand the Ukraine conflict, but it is important to understand, I think, in the sense that arguably Russia was at its peak Leverage vis-a-vis Ukraine and Europe five, six months ago. And it was going to be downhill from there in terms of... The
0: sense was they might join NATO. They might therefore be impossible to invade. Or Even with it, the NATO invade. bit, which I think we talk about too
2: much. Not irrelevant. Mm-hmm. I just mean in the sense of Ukraine was headed in a more ideologically democratic direction mm-hmm. in a way that its politicians and its people were going to refuse to tolerate interference or yeah. subjugation the same way that say, Belarus has, has accepted that. That was moving in a bad direction. I mean, a good direction from my perspective, mm-hmm. bad direction for Putin's. They were also getting better defending themselves. They just acquired Turkish drones. They're going to get a lot more Turkish drones. We've all seen how important these are. Neptune missiles, they were developing them, and we've seen how effective these have been at least somewhat in sinking warships. And then maybe they would get long-range weaponry from NATO. Or, but, but even without the NATO thing, they were, Russia was losing leverage, hmm. or could look, look forward to Their advantage was starting to slowly shrink. So there was a closing window of opportunity. I don't think it was totally closing. I don't think that's the main reason. But I think it helps us. It contributes amidst these other four factors. I think it sort of. I think it helps us understand some of the timing and some of the motivations. So let's get into
0: then. What do you do about it, right? And that that is seems to be a, a motivating theme of your book. Yeah. As I said, there's a big peace building industry. You know, there are experts and professionals around the world working on these issues. What do you think are the insights out of those five logics that should change the way they
2: work? Yeah. So every path to peace we have that works is operating through one of these five logics, and and you're right that. You said earlier we do a lot of stuff that doesn't work. But actually, you know, I'm kind of impressed. I look at a lot of the things that we do and I I emerge a lot more confident. Everything from mediation, peacekeeping, sanctions, on and on and on. The tools that we have for international wars, civil wars, gang wars, village wars are they're not great. We can do a lot better. They actually often do pretty well or they help a little bit. And they help and when they do, they help because they're rolling back the five factors. And so it's like a lens to look through these things. Mm. So like what does a mediator do? So what role is Turkey or Turkey and Israel trying to play? Well, mediators are trying to reduce uncertainty by encouraging conversation through both sides. So instead of like learning through fighting, which is what happens, you can also learn through mediation and conversation. They're trying to and, and trying to sort of get rid of that Bluffing thing by trying to be credible and interlocutor between both sides. Okay, that's that's a big there are also commitment problems are hard, like finding that commitment deal is tricky. You need mm-hmm. like some it's, it's not always hard to find. mediators are really good at finding those things. And then mediators are also trying to get, our mis- get like, rid us of our misperceptions. You talk to them and what they do day- to- day. And I mean this for like a lawyer who does mediation between business disputes, or somebody like Jonathan Powell, right, who writes books about being an international mediator in his own country or abroad. and a lot of it is about trying to erode misperceptions that these leaders hold on to. And, and, so, and they're effective. And we've evidence that they're effective because they're doing this. And that's just one, one example.
0: Let's think about you know, what this means. And I, and I want to soon go to people who are following along and might want to add their own questions. So please go ahead and start and start doing that. But what does it mean in the current context, right? You, yeah. You're saying something which is a little bit counterintuitive, right. which is that actually the, the most common state of affairs is peace. Yeah. Um, and that a lot of what we're doing to try to avoid conflict is working or there, there's some seeds of success in that. Yeah. On the other hand, if you look at what we write about every day at DevX, you look at the, you know, the broader uh, mainstream media, what you hear about is conflict. Yeah. And it's often driven because of things like climate. There's a sense yeah. that people are on the move, that there are scarce water resources, that you know, yields of, of crops are going down, and this is affecting yeah. peace and stability in countries. Now we have a food crisis that's budding and that many experts tell us could be worse than what happened during the Arab Spring, 2008, 2011 or so. Yeah. Um, how do you see that context that we're in now mm-hmm. and and is your lens on this a bit different maybe than the way it's normally perceived in places like USIP? So
2: I wanted to take these shocks, these terrible things that are happening like the climate and food crises seriously, at the same time I want to put them in perspective. Let me start actually, let me get to that in a second. Let me start by about 2 weeks into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm scrolling through my phone. It takes me about like 17 scrolls to get past the Ukraine news. Uh, And there's this little story about India. Yesterday, India launched a cruise missile accidentally at Pakistan. And peace ensued. Um, And as it has for decades. Now, if a war had broken out at that moment in in, in Pakistan, we would all know what the articles would look like and how this war was inevitable and long brewing. What were the causes of this war? But actually, peace breaks out every day to some degree in over Kashmir and some of these other issues. Uh, Or at least it stays very contained, the the violence is is contained in low scale. So that's the norm. And it's also the norm in Russia, in the sense that Russia has lots of neighbors that it's tried to subjugate successfully, actually, without violence, I'm sorry, with lots of repression, but without a war, right. So I'm I'm not trying to say there's no repression and no threats. I'm trying to say there wasn't prolonged fighting between the two sides. And, And indeed, in Ukraine, they tried for 20 years, every other trick in the book, you know, propaganda, dark money, poisonings, mm-hmm. on and on and on, without, like, invasion was the last resort. Okay, so we need to keep this in perspective. So like a doctor, let's focus on the terminal, ill, but let's not forget that most people are healthy.
0: And is it valid to think of violent struggle as that distinct from those other means of persuasion, assassinations, repression? Yeah. Is, that a, is that a useful construct to separate those out, just given the the cost of violent struggle being so much worse? Or in a sense, is it really all one continuum?
2: Well, there's a continuum, of course, of violent. I mean, I I, I do think there's a big, I think everyone would agree there's a categorical difference between this pitched battle that has killed more soldiers and more people and more civilians, even just on the Russian side, than their long war in Afghanistan and what they were doing before, which was this quiet kind of evil meddling, which frankly all great powers do. Uh, and so, yeah, I think there's a qualitative and quantitative difference between the nefarious things we do that are not as violent, like drone strikes and cyber attacks and, 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 and propaganda and disinformation. I don't want, I'm not trying to say these things are good anymore. <laughs> I'm just trying to say, like, they're, 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 I'd rather people use that than war. And, of course, there's other tools I'd rather them use than these nefarious ones. But to get back to the point about, like, food and climate, these are important. But, like... What I think listen, when you look at all the water scarcity incidents and you actually count how many become violent, it's very, very few. Right? Because war is always ruinous. And so you always strive to avoid it. And so just because there's something to be conflicted over, just because the pie shrinks, doesn't you know, fighting still destroys the share of the pie, so we try to avoid it. Right? And and the scarcer water is, maybe the less you even want to fight over it because it's really detrimental. Uh and so so actually, there isn't really much association between water scarcity and war. And there's not that much scarcity between sudden shocks to commodity prices and the outbreak of conflict. So you see people in the streets, they're protesting,
0: yeah. but that doesn't lead to a violent revolution, which leads to a prolonged civil war in most cases.
2: I mean, sometimes it does. Like, look at the Arab Spring. I mean, rising food prices are, can be a contributing factor to unrest. I'm not saying these things don't create unrest. Unrest right, is is important, but then most political change happens without that turning more violent and turning into a violent revolution, right? So, History, democratization, political change throughout history is mostly revolutions without violent revolt. It's political elites capitulating or just granting a little bit of ground to the masses when they get more power, and it's the masses capitulating a little bit to the elites when the elites get a little bit more powerful. But then, of course, we do have Syria and we do have Libya. There have been some violence. So it's not to say that there's no risk. It's just to at least remember that most places that will have unrest won't actually, this won't turn into violence. The incentives are not for violence. We should be laser focused on trying to identify the circumstances that are going to actually lead that politics to turn into bloodshed, right? Bargaining by other means. Do you feel like we can do that? Do we today have the
0: ability, you and your colleagues who look at these things, or people in US government agencies in the State Department or USAID, do they have the ability today to kind of bring your five logics, bring this algorithm to individual contexts and say, that's a place where a small spark,
2: maybe food prices, could actually lead to prolonged violent conflict? Absolutely not. (laughs) I would sell a lot more books if I pretended we had that answer. I think we're rotten at prediction. I've actually tried my hand, a lot of big data machine learning in countries with really rich data come up almost empty to some degree, because I think what we're really good, we're, we're really good at, we can use these tools to identify the smaller set of places that are at high risk, that are fragile in the sense that each of these five factors have accumulated. That's what fragility is. Fragility means each of these five factors have this sort of shrunk that the costs that our leaders are paying attention to to such a tiny sliver that just any perturbation can can set things off and then we just don't know where because the, the that gravitational pull is so strong in so many places we know most of these places shocked are going to are probably not going to go into turn into bloodshed the, but like, going back to what we were saying, like, what, what accentuates commitment problems, uncertainty, misperceptions, ideological incentives, and, and like, these unchecked interests is centralized power right? Because dictators can't make credible commitments. We're not sure what's going on in their mind. We're vulnerable to this mere misperception. We're vulnerable to their ideologies. And then they don't pay attention to most of the cost. So if I had to like pick one thing to focus on, I would say, look at the places where power is more concentrated. And where did that? Where did the, like some of the worst stuff break out? Like Syria and Libya is not, to me, so surprising. There's a big theme, and we're about to get into the, some of the questions here, but there's a big theme in the global development sector
0: about localization, yeah. country ownership. And at least part of that is saying, hey, we should work more through governments. Yeah, um, And of course, there are countries like Rwanda that are you know, considered donor darlings, very yes. successful states in terms of the way they coordinate development activities and have some good development results. Uh, but there's a lot of centralized power there. Yeah. Do you think we're getting that wrong as a global development community, that we should be uh, perhaps not investing so much directly through governments? Mm-hmm. I mean, frankly, we're not doing that much of it, but there's a, a theme, yeah. a discussion point that we should do more and maybe do more through civil society and local groups? Are we falling into a trap of some kind that may lead to
2: future violent conflict? So localization, the answer to localization, it depends. Are we contributing to the problem of concentration of power and few checks and balances in that society with this development assistance or diplomatic approach? Or are we are we on the margin trying to make it a little bit better? And that's the best. And as an outsider, there's not much you can do, but, but you have a choice. I can drop a truckloads of money in the finance ministry, who really probably is just listening to the president, or we can drop it out of helicopters through community-driven development programs metaphorically, so to speak, right? Give directly or these kinds of things. Could be yeah. give directly, but could even be like a very common approach is, is just to sort of community development grants, like mm-hmm. grants to villages, grants to mayors, like, that's, that's a choice we make. And one of those concentrates power and decision making, and one of them doesn't. Uh, we can choose to empower like a we can, and try to do things. The United States is pretty good at private sector development, right, even though I mean, a development apparatus isn't that good compared to other bilaterals. But we're pretty good at that. That's a kind of check and balance. Building up a middle class and industrial class, crony capitalists, right? I would lo- I would love for Paul Kagame to be constrained by more crony capitalists. That would help a little bit, um, even if it's not enough. And and then rejecting this idea of coddling the Melisanawis and the Paul Kagames. I mean, super convenient to sort of deal with one of these people, especially if they're at their benevolent stage. Not at the stage where clinging on to power, trying to pass power onto their crony or their son or their daughter. They just take the country down the drain, which is just the the second act in almost every single one of these cases. And somehow we forget that.
0: So we we may see like great development gains that actually improve people's lives for a decade or two decades or three. But we're doing that at the cost potentially of some long term violent struggle because
2: we're empowering the centralization. I mean, you look at the data on the great growth successes of, of the last you know, century, and a lot of them happen under these personalized dictatorships. And a lot of the great growth failures happen under these personalized dictatorships. And then you really look at the data and you realize it's the same dictatorship. <laughs> they take them up and they take them down. And yeah. there's very few. And then we're like, oh, what about Lee Kuan Yew? Well, yes, we can cherry pick one or two instances where they actually checked and balanced themselves and their, and their institutions. Uh, and didn't fall down that trap, but that almost never happens. The slow, steady progress in development and good policy is happening by these checked and balanced regimes. So we've got a number of
0: questions that have come in, and I wanted to start getting getting to some of these from the audience, and, and we can sort of tease out some of the insights from your book. You know, you talk a lot about being incremental. Mm-hmm. So the way the book ends is you talk about this idea of piecemeal engineers. Uh, this idea you're gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna build peace, but you're gonna do it in a small mm-hmm. state, small small way step by step and not try to come in with a big vision. Yeah. And you break that down into these basically 10 commandments of peace building. Yeah. Um, what do you think about this idea of being incremental? And what should policymakers expect from peace building and in what time frame, given yeah. your approach? you know, I imagine right now there are people on the Hill saying, we've got to end the war in Ukraine today. Yeah. Um, but your approach seems
2: smaller scale, more piecemeal, slower. How do these things fit together? Yeah. Well, let me say, I mean, like, how you end a book like this is like a big problem. Most books fail at the end. And they fail in a couple ways, I think. Or one, so a good friend and a longtime mentor, early mentor of mine is Bill Easterly, who, whose books end on sort of a, there's nothing you can do, you might as well just give up. Right? I didn't want to write that book because Bill and I disagree there. Uh, in a good-natured way. One of my other early mentors is Jeff Sachs, and 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 someone I also admire and I love their book is Steven Pinker, and these are books that that sort of end with grand optimism and grand plans, and I disagree with them as well. Uh, and I I took, so I didn't want to end the book with like everything's going to get better and here's your ten-step plan to peace. Uh, so how do I do it? And and I I, I took a page from someone I always someone who's sort of deeply influential in my thinking, and I think an idea that's deeply influential through all the great development thinking, and peace building thinking that's out there, which is starts with Karl Popper, and the idea of piecemeal engineering. And that's where I get the title, I, I, I try to make it cute, but I think it's like a dad joke, instead of spelling it piecemeal with P I E C E, I tell it piece with P E A C E. And, um, and I try to show how uh, every great success in policy development, immigration, cities, every strat- every facet of human society uh, has actually been made by people who are engaged in sort of not trying to make grand steps but trying to make incremental steps and are doing so in a way that they're trying to tell whether or not what they're doing makes a difference. And and it, it occurred to me that all of the thinkers from all these facets of life that were that, that, that had influenced me were saying the same thing. But we had to apply it to, to peace building. and. And so, uh, and so the, you know, sort of the last chapter of the book kind of charts out how that, how that can work. Yeah, Karl Popper, who is, of course, a famous
0: philosopher of science, right. and was applying that idea to everything in public policy. And right. you're saying it's also applicable and to here. to science, and to how we make progress in right. science. And it's, uh, part of it's like incremental changes, trying things and seeing they don't work, mm-hmm. and then trying the next thing, right? Iterating as you go. right. We've got a, another question that's come in that talks about the context, and it's about social media, right. um, and saying that social media platforms have been creating this idea of competing truths. Yeah. Um, and does this weaken the opportunity to have checks and balances without violence? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's part of your uncertainty logic, yeah. you know, but this idea that you may have different parties, and you, you talk about a mediator kind of getting people on the same page, different parties that are very much on different pages. They don't even agree on the basic facts and that social media maybe has has changed that dynamic what's your take on it
2: so i don't really see like a first order i'm not sure this is going to ramp up or ramp down conflict in any way because i don't really see how it's changing any of these big five kinds of reasons on the on the margin though i actually am a little bit optimistic in the sense that it's been an incredibly democratizing uh, thing. in the, sets of, the set of voices, expert voices, but also angry voices of non-experts have been sort of given a platform uh, to exchange a lot of different information and ideas. And I think I, I know a lot more about what's, as an as a expert on conflict, but someone who doesn't know anything really about Russia and Ukraine, I think I'm more knowledgeable and I'm checked. And when I make mistakes, I'm corrected more quickly because of this platform we've created. This one would have happened 10 years ago. I would have dwelled in student my ignorance, but a little bit longer than I have. And so I sort of see this actually as a positive force for sort of checking and balancing a lot of bad expert ideas. And it's not a
0: fundamental shift of the landscape. It's important maybe, but it doesn't completely change and
2: throw out the way that you've studied conflict as it's existed over many years. The way I see technology is, is we have this incentive not to fight, right, but one side can be stronger than the other. A lot of struggles in a lot of countries is between government controlled by a small elite cabal who subjugated the masses. And I think social media for a while was something that actually strengthened the mobilizational power of the broader masses, and then without coming to violence, brought them more freedom and brought more accountability to the elite. So it was like a bargaining tool that was affecting how much of the pie either side got. And now we're starting to see it potentially shift in the other direction where the governments have figured this out and are using it to sort of control and disinform and disorganize the masses. So I don't think it's causing more or less conflict. I think it's more that it's shifting the bargaining power of either side in these struggles in, in ways that are shifting and hard to predict. But I don't think it's causing more or less violence. So we talk a little about mediation, and we've got a
0: question related to that, which is sort of like, who should the mediator be? Yeah. You know, is there a difference whether it's a nation state? You know, you use Turkey as an example or the UN or some other independent non-nation state body, some neutral organization. Have you seen anything there that's
2: kind of thematic that works? So, you know, my day job isn't talking to mediators at this high level in figuring out the Ukraine-Russia conflict. My day job is working in civil wars, is working in inter-ethnic conflicts between villages, is working in gang conflicts. And so the mediation I see, is at that level, but what gave me insight into the higher level mediation was running experiments, running tests of what the mediators do and why do they work. And that's where I, that's how I discovered at this more village, gang, civil war level that the role that mediators were playing in reducing uncertainty, reducing misperceptions, reducing commitment problems, and and then finding quantitative evidence that they work at this scale. Um, I think we can extrapolate a lot from that. Mm I think the the mediators who spend a lot of time thinking about the shape of the table. And, and there's a lot of nonsense, I think there is. Um, I think the mediators who spend more time thinking about finding settlements and thinking about these problems, a lot of them do, right? They don't write it the same way I wrote this in the book, I sort of translated it into kind of like social science to some degree, but I think there's some who really get it. Uh, and I think the ones who are a little bit less focused on shapes of the table a little bit more focused on, on actually how do we like create more reasonable bargainers and help people reach settlements is, is maybe like the first basic principle. I don't know if that answers their question.
0: There's another interesting question that came in because you talk about the cost of war being so high and that that's yeah. why for the most part people choose peace. What about when nuclear weapons are involved? Yeah. Um, you know, are you convinced by the idea of a nuclear peace? Mm-hmm. And let's say, use a counterfactual, let's say Ukraine had nuclear weapons. Yeah. Would that have changed this dynamic
2: uh, because the cost of war is just so much higher for Russia? In that case, they would have never invaded. How do you see nuclear yeah. weapons? Well, nobody should ever be convinced of anything because the the number one thing, if anybody's certain about the cause of war, certain about their peace, they know they're wrong because there's just too much a chance here and there's no certainty. N- a nuclear... Being mutually nuclear armed and this threat of mutual assured destruction is the ultimate deterrence strategy. It is because war is so costly that India and Pakistan didn't go to war over this cruise missile and we didn't, you know, in the United States have a direct conflict with the USSR for so many years, right? So it works almost all of the time, I think, is 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 maybe but that's not maybe good enough because that that tiny little chance. And I think it is tiny is just so disastrous that that, um, that just having these weapons around and that capacity for mutual destruction is is maybe one of the most dangerous things on the planet.
0: Right, so the costs are so high that it might reduce the incidence, yeah. but if and when there is a nuclear right. war, it's that bad that it takes away all of the maybe peace benefit, peace dividend you had in those prior years.
2: Yeah, I mean, because I, I think it's, like I said, war doesn't happen most of the time, but I didn't write a book called Why We Don't Fight uh because it can happen because of these circumstances we're seeing circumstances now we can imagine how this could come about even if it's very very tiny and and i think we need to do more about that
0: so one of the topics you hear around the u.s institute of peace for last several years is the idea of a global fragility act which was passed by congress um and i guess it implicates u.s government policy on these very issues Mm -hmm. you know and it talks about things like getting local and it talks about you know really having more of a whole of government strategy from the U.S. Yeah, I guess I wonder: Are there some takeaways from your book, from your research on the way the U.S. government approaches these issues of, of mitigating or stopping conflict? Is there is the U.S. government getting it right, getting it wrong? What are some takeaways for you? That's a, a key question we've gotten here.
2: So the way it's framed and written, it could either be good or bad. Right? It 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 says. Um, it says, let's localize. But as we've already said, you could localize and make things worse, right? It says set a strategy, which is great. But if their strategy is let's, let's continue to coddle the Kagames and the Melisanawis and the of the world, which is to some extent, our basic diplomatic approach, much of the time, then rather than looking back to, you know, our own founders, like James Madison, and taking some inspiration from what made this country successful, I think we could end up with the wrong strategy. Uh, I think we could get distracted by things that are important in general, like reducing climate change, but are maybe second or third order when it comes to, I think, conflict prevention. So there's a lot of risks there. So it's kind of like a big, it depends, I think. If but on the other hand, if if it was a strategy, and it's a good thing, and, and if they focus, you know, everyone loves to sort of focus on coordinating better, right, which is such a bureaucratic thing to do, of course, if we should do it somewhat, but, but on the other hand, if the strategy that eventually emerges, I think, looked through this lens, not my lens, the lens that comes from decades of like the most brilliant minds that I've just tried to distill, then I think, then I feel more optimistic, right? And that's, that's kind of the reason I put this together, because I at least want people to reject it, read the book, reject it, but like, think about maybe we should be trying to reduce uncertainties between rivals, Uh, We should be trying to find ways to reduce misperceptions. We should be finding, we should be building international institutions and then not rejecting them, but joining them that actually try to create commitment and that try to hold unchecked leaders and people pursuing ideological objectives accountable. Um, That to me would be real
0: progress. It sounds like if we boil it down, the main critique you have of U.S. government policy in this area is that we are helping power become more centralized in many cases.
2: Uh, on, often, but not always. We're, we're ignorant of that as like one of the fundamental criteria that we should be considering every time an opportunity crosses a desk. Uh, we, are, we, are, we are not recognizing that I think, and I think this is the message of almost every uh, great thinker in development or public policy, uh, of the last 50 years when they've when the people when people have gone and actually said what worked and what didn't, why did some countries get ahead and why did some countries break it basically comes down to concentrated unaccountable power is like the root cause of and 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 this is jane jacobs explaining mm-hmm. why some american cities succeed and fail this is james scott explaining why some states have have been oppressive and successful this is this is just goes, the list goes on and on it's not even about conflict and, and I think if we just brought that criterion to everything we do, amongst the other criteria that we have to evaluate, like is this a quality project, or is this like going to be cost effective? There's lots of criteria that come naturally. Is this going to concentrate power in society or not? Is like the fundamental thing that I think is just going to lead to good or bad outcomes in, in the medium and long run for the. For and these we just don't ask that helpful. question very much. Yeah, it's just not on our. You know, the job of, of of I think an academic like me, the job of DevX. The job of USIP, I think, is to try to change the conversation, mm-hmm. uh, to try to basically have these things come to front of mind for people. And if that's the one thing I would have come to front of mind as a result of, like, what's the path to peace, that, that would be, be it for me. You kind of,
0: as an aside earlier, mentioned that the U.S. government's bilateral aid is not as effective as some other countries. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Jane Jacobs right now. And I guess the example you talk about with her in the book is that she was critical of the kind of grand visionaries around yeah. city planning, you know, and who would come in and say, let's, let's completely plan this entire city. And she said, well, why don't we just listen to the people and let people design their own city? Is that the critique of, of the U.S. bilateral aid program? Like, why do you think it's not as effective? Is it because we have a grand vision
2: yeah, yeah. and we kind of lead with that as opposed to listening on the ground? So I think it happens on many levels. But let me put it in like a little simple, concrete way that like the average person, I think, in a who's like in a, an ambassador or sitting at the desk of a... Somewhere in USAID or some NGO or whatever, they're confronted. They're like, we have to do this thing, this project. We've got an objective we want to obtain over the next five years, and we've got some donor that's going to give us money. Or you're the donor that has to decide. Here's how most of these things happen Years one, you write out exactly what you're going to do from the outset, and then you implement that grand plan to do it one way, and then around year three or four, you realize it's not working. And then you kind of rejigger it a little bit in year four, and then year five, you do something that's not as bad. That's basically every five-year plan at the high level or lowest level that you've ever seen. And I'm saying, what would be a concrete way to be more of a piecemeal engineer? It would be to say, let's actually just do what we're already doing, but institutionalize it and do all that messing around in year one. Why don't we institutionally just say, actually, we don't really know what the, this is a complex problem. We don't exactly know how to solve it. We're going to try five or six or 10 different things in the first year. And then even just through careful observation, not even, don't run a study, right? I'm not, that would be the academic thing to say, right? I'm just saying, just, just experiment the same way that a shopkeeper is constantly trying to like run little experiments. Put this over here, put this over here, put that in front, put that in back. Do those, do that. And, and then in years two through five, try to pick the one thing that you think is really more effective and learn from them and do that better. That would be like a basic, marginal, incremental thing that if we just all thought that way and approached every project that way, and some organizations are really good at this. There are examples that are out there. They're doing this already, and they're the best organizations out there. Uh, I think everything would get
0: a lot better. We've got a couple of questions in that really directly address the point you're making right now, so maybe we can just dig a little deeper into it. You know, one of them is talking about, how do we actually get the authority and the tools to experiment? Mm -hmm. And another, on kind of the other side of the same coin, is how can we build tolerance to risk when we're talking about the US government, right? So in a lot of ways, this project mentality, this idea that you define the problem and then define the solution and then spend five years working that through, it's a government procurement problem, right? Do you see solutions to that problem here? And I think that's what these questions are getting to.
2: Yeah. So I've seen examples. You know, in the book, I talk about the crime lab in Chicago. I talk about the UN Peacebuilding Fund in Liberia. And and in general, I talk about some great examples of people who figured this out and built, like, local authority. And that little corner of the organization, and they've they've made it happen and been really successful, and that can be contagious. I also talk, you know, in some ways, you guys have the wrong member of my family in the room. My wife built this internal unit at the International Rescue Committee and went from one person to 70, and they're just constantly running these experiments. And I think the, the part of the answer is you get lucky with your leadership and they embrace it. It's not always gonna happen. But I think part of it is like, you're gonna show success, is at the end of the day, you're always engaged in an experiment. Most people are running a single experiment that's the five-year-long failed experiment, and so I'm just saying I think you'll be uh, 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 like a paragon of just sort of success on average, because you'll consistently be the person in your organization that's delivering something more successful over that five-year horizon, even if you have to suffer some of the failures. Um, and uh, and so I think I think that's that's not a Easy thing to ask of people, mm-hmm. but I but I think it's I think it's the good long-term strategy for you.
0: Mentioned your wife and, and you do have a lot of interesting personal stories in the book, including how you two met, which <laughs> is something maybe worth reading the book to find out more about. Uh, we got another question about how can industrialized and democratic states mm-hmm. support the people who are in semi-democratic and authoritarian societies and are trying to bargain against their local political elite. Um, you know, as you say, when you think about development agencies and NGOs so often yeah. you 're interfacing with the local political elite, yeah. maybe making the problem worse of concentration of power. so how do you
2: actually get around that so first, I want to say like that 's like the best question that we should all i mean I think that's as as a as wealthy and powerful individuals, which many of us are really any American is vis- the rest of the world as a wealthy and powerful state, like how do we strengthen uh people against the elites is should just be the question on all their minds. I don't have the perfect answer. I don't even have a great answer because it's actually not my specialty. But I I just want to start by saying we should just get up every morning asking that question, right? And but we can I think it's surprising we can all do it in our jobs in the aid sector in the diplomacy sector in this world. Uh, Even as a voter, right, I think we can all do a little bit on the margin. And so what's an example? Like, where do I give my money? I give one of the places we donate every month is to give directly right give directly is just sort of sending cash to people who are using that to support small enterprise development and that's something that on the margin is trying to is empowering individuals and you know maybe that little business they start or whatever is going to is it's just going to actually just shift the economic bargaining power in that society towards other people right but as a as a as a on a, on an just as you know if I were in the World Bank, I would think a little bit more every day about how to build industrial capacity and shift some more industrial capacity towards sub-Saharan Africa, for example, which actually a lot of people do get up in the morning and think about. So they, they might not realize that by changing the, the ability to exercise voice, organizations like the Carter Center, and I'm trying to improve how political parties function, election monitoring, cash transfers, industrial development, there are all of these little things we do and can do that are part of our toolkit, that I think we could emphasize more, and that would be a better bet than, than some of the stuff that centralizes power. You have a
0: mention in your book that kind of gets to this, and I wanted to probe it a little bit with you, and that's you talk about how there's this effective altruism movement. Right. There are these things we know work. Give directly would fit on that list. You know, think of Give Well, and there yeah. there are nine or ten recommended charities. Um, And you say, you know, definitely give money there, Mm -hmm. but save some money for the wicked problems that that are harder to solve. And I guess I I wonder why, you know, what is your rationale there for the many effective altruists and and new billionaire philanthropists and others who are enamored by the idea that, why wouldn't we just invest in the things that we work, that we know work, especially when you're telling us, hey, these peace problems, they're really hard to solve. We're not sure what to do, we have to experiment, we have to try and, and then fail and then try again why not just put all of our resources into vitamin A pills?
2: Yeah. So we live in a world where there's a few simple problems that still exist with a few simple solutions that are just under-resourced. Uh, and the effective altruism movement is, and, 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 the, and the sort of randomized trial movement that I've been a part of mm-hmm. has has helped identify and fund. And, and I've worked on some of these things. You know, some of my work on cognitive behavioral therapy and violence is I think a little bit in this category. And so of course, I, I do this every day and I give to those things. So let's do it. Um, but we the the consequences of not dealing with political instability. And the consequences of not dealing with unequal power in societies and strengthening the bargaining, checking and balancing elite and personalized rule, those consequences are so dire that if we ignore them or get them wrong, like everything else could just fall apart. For there's no there's no development, there's no advance, there's no health without basic security and stability. It's the cornerstone. So we have to figure out that complex problem. And so we have to and we have to be piecemeal tinkerers to get there. And then hopefully by spending a little bit more time on that, we'll find a few simple things that like work in that space. That's great. Most of the time we won't, but but let's not ignore it because the the whatever. The economist in me would say the negative externalities are so dire, but we all understand it as just saying like things would go Completely south if we don't actually get better at this. Right.
0: Whatever good development work was done in Ukraine, yeah. you can see how quickly it's been set back by yeah. a short, violent conflict. Even if this ends soon, hopefully it does. We got another question about China mm-hmm. and their role. I mean, there are many fragile states, as the questioner mm-hmm. mentions, where China is actively involved. They have a strong development strategy. They're partnering with government. Yeah. Does this change the dynamic in some way? Um, does it make? Does that context perhaps? elevate the possibility
2: of civil war in some of these fragile places? The Chinese, oh, China's say involvement in in other countries. Um, you know, another area where I don't want to pretend I have expertise. Uh, I think that every time we think about could we do x or is, is this country doing x, I think we have to distinguish between Are they strengthening the bargaining power of one side versus the other, or are they doing things to make the bargains fall apart and turn into violence? And I put a lot of Chinese actions more so than the United States in terms of strengthening the level of elite control over societies, the kinds of technologies they're they've produced and exported for for for. uh, for monitoring and controlling conversations, as the United States has as mm-hmm. well. Uh, so, so that's, I think, changing. And, and so the sense in which it's indirectly think making peace less likely is, I think, it's concentrating power. China itself, though, is a good example of an autocracy that is very checked and balanced in many ways, More certainly more so than Russia. And, and even if President Xi Jinping seems to want to move that in the other direction, and more personalized rule on the margin, maybe a lot, uh, Um, I I think it's it's actually a good example of why not all autocracies are doomed to to go to war. I think think there are highly institutionalized, checked and balanced systems that are not democratic, and we have to pay attention attention to that and and draw some hope from that.
0: Well, it seems to me we're already in this creeping cold war with China, which if it's anything like the last cold war with the Soviet Union, from a development perspective, will mean both powers are looking to partner with governments and maybe centralize more power yeah. and perhaps could lead to more of the very problem that you're describing in your book.
2: Yeah, what would be fearsome, what happened in the last Cold War, and I hope doesn't happen in this one, would be proxy wars, which is the ultimate example. That, what's that, we talked about the five reasons for conflict. The mm-hmm. first one was these unchecked interests, the fact that we go to war when our leaders don't bear the costs. The ultimate example of being able to decide to go to war without bearing the costs is basically funding a rebel movement or a oppressive regime in another country to fund a fight a war, uh, because we don't bear any of the costs. I mean, we have to cost of giving them weapons. That's minuscule in our budget, and and it's that uh, unaccountability for the damage that that decision causes that leads to these proxy wars. And so that that would worry me going ahead if if this really did enter a cold war.
0: We're just in the last few minutes, and we had a, a kind of final thoughts question from our audience as well about what do you hope policymakers and peace builders will take away after reading your book. Mm-hmm. What are some of the implications you want them to go and kind of do differently in their day-to-day
2: work after they read this? So I mean one is just to always start with this premise of that we have to pay attention to the costs of war. So if I were thinking about what's going to happen in the next months and years with Ukraine-Russia, and I wanted to think about that, I would be laser focused because even once war is broken out, the fact that war is so ruinously costly for both sides is a gravitational pull towards peace. It's also a tool, right? The more that Ukraine's allies, or for that matter, Russia's allies, can make that war costly in a resolute, clear way, in some sense, paradox, by, by funding and guaranteeing, paradoxically, through this logic of deterrence, which isn't perfect, can actually maybe shorten this war, by changing the incentives for this war of attrition to say, wear Ukraine down. Not without risk, but uh, but again, only by focusing on the cost of war, by by thinking about sanctions as we have. I think this is why we've been so reliant on sanctions. We're trying to make this decision more costly. Uh, and so it doesn't always work, but just that basic frame of mind for thinking about how we do like and, and, and you can do that at a local level, like when you're worried about these villages going to conflict, farmer herder conflicts, or ethnic or religious conflicts or gang warfare, what can you as a police chief or a development worker or a mayor or whatever, you just want to focus on how do we make the people who are deciding more conscious and accountable for the costs of their decisions. And that's just this basic starting point for every intervention, for every analysis uh, that I think if we use is just going to lead us to much better outcomes. Yeah, that idea
0: of accountability is so key mm-hmm. in everything that we do in development and humanitarian work, and it's so great that you brought that and underlined it here in this book. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's fantastic. It's engaging. It's interesting. It brings new insights, but, it, but filled with stories that, that help to illuminate them, uh, and I'm sure people are going to enjoy it. And I love the fact that in the book you describe yourself as an international do-gooder and meddler, um, and maybe that's a little bit of what we need more of, you know, of people with the right intentions and with the right frameworks
2: meddling in a good way. Right, and a being conscious that it's not really clear how legitimate we are as meddlers and just constantly sort of being on guard, I think, for our own uh Well, that, that word is so purposes. helpful in that yeah, way, right? Exactly. Uh, it
0: really does require some self-reflection to call yourself that. So I appreciated reading it. I appreciate the book very much. I want to thank you. It's been a real treat to get to talk to you, Chris Blattman. Thanks to the U.S. Institute of Peace. Thanks to Joe Hewitt. And uh, thanks to all of you who've been a part of this conversation today. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to this event.
0: If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org
1: forward slash podcasts.